Quarter Quill, Cyndaquil, Peter Quill, Prequill, doesn't matter. Katniss in five. Hey there, and welcome to a rousing edition of Post Credits with Gil Garcia, where we go beyond the final scene. Now that the Thanksgiving leftovers have left you in a food coma, it's time to get back to business and gear up for the new holiday season. But first, we must travel to Pan Am for today's episode of the show as we review The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. I don't want to tip my hat, there's a lot to cover on today's show, but I don't know what's longer, the film's title or the runtime of the final act of the movie, (laughs) but we'll definitely discuss that later on. As I do with all new release films, we are sticking today to the post credit spoiler format. If this is your first time listening to the show, the episode will be completely spoiler-free until we reach the outro music. After the outro music, there will be a full-on spoiler discussion for those of you who have seen the film or don't care about spoilers. Following last week's announcement, I want to reiterate the upcoming schedule and our month-long celebration that we're doing on the show for the month of December, which I am calling the Season of Giveaways. Beginning next week with my Guilty Pleasures holiday special episode, I will be giving away a $25 gift card of your choosing every week to a lucky listener of the show. To enter the giveaway, next week I will utter a key phrase in the middle of the episode, and all you have to do is share our episode posting on Instagram or quote-tweeting the episode on X using the key phrase and hashtag postcreditsxmas. I will also post on my social media how to enter the giveaway in case you are confused. There's a limit one prize per winner, meaning if you win the first week's prize, you will be ineligible for the remainder of the giveaways. And I will be posting the official rules and calendar on my socials after this episode goes live to promote the giveaway. Be sure to follow on Instagram and X, both platforms have the same username with PC with Gil. As for the calendar, here's what to expect out of the month of December. Starting on December 4th, we have our Guilty Pleasures Holiday Special, featuring Jingle All the Way and Deck the Halls. Don't want to miss that one. <laughs> on December 11th, we have the Home Alone Trilogy, where I'll be reviewing Home Alone 1, 2 Lost in New York, and number 3. And then on December 18th, we have Wonka, starring Timothy Chalamet. And our final episode of the year of 2023 will come on December 25th, where I review Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Looking past December, I want to also give you guys a heads up on what to expect going into 2024. I have some early plans on two big end-of-the-year celebration episodes, one of which I will be calling The Gillies. It will be my best of 2023 extravaganza, where I'll present my favorite films of the year that I've seen, and categories will include best action scene, best performance from an actress, best performance from an actor, and best movie of the year. There will obviously be more categories, one of which will be voted on by you, the listeners, for fan favorite film of the year. So be sure and stay tuned for the Gillies coming in January. Now, the second award show episode will come near the end of February when the Oscar nominations are announced. I will be doing an Oscar predictions episode where I will be reviewing the Best Picture nominations for the Academy Awards in 2024. 
Now, when 2024 starts, the show will enter its second season, if you will. With the segregation of seasons, I want to keep the show tight and organized for future listeners, with the option maybe towards the end of 2024 to monetize and archive the old seasons into maybe a Patreon. But don't worry, that is almost an entire year away. As of right now, I'm enjoying our time here on the show, and while I'm still learning and growing this platform, there will be no ads or monetization until I feel like we are ready for it. If there is one thing I'm thankful for this Thanksgiving, it is this community. I appreciate every one of you for taking the time to listen to my dumb little show, and I'll work hard every week to improve and bring you the best entertainment for your morning commute. Anyways... Enough housekeeping, let's focus up on the reason why you're here today. May the odds be ever in our favor and get to the Hunger Games, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. This is Act 1, Synopsis and Connections. In the Hunger Games, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, the story of Coriolanus Snow, years before he would become the tyrannical president of Panem, He is handsome and charming, and though the Snow family has fallen on hard times, Coriolanus sees a chance for change in his fortunes when he is chosen to be a mentor for the 10th Hunger Games, only to have his elation dashed when he is assigned to mentor a girl tribute named Lucy Gray Baird from the impoverished District 12. The Hunger Games The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is directed by Francis Lawrence, who is also the director of The Hunger Games Catching Fire and The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1 and Part 2. He has also directed the television series on Apple Plus called C, starring Jason Momoa. And the film is written by Michael Leslie, known for Assassin's Creed, Michael Arndt, who is an Oscar winner for Little Miss Sunshine. He also wrote The Hunger Games Catching Fire, Toy Story 3, and The Force Awakens. And the final writing credit goes to Suzanne Collins, who is the author of the Hunger Games novels. The film stars Rachel Zegler as Lucy Gray Baird, Tom Blythe as Coriolanus Snow, Viola Davis as Dr. Vol... Oh, I knew I was going to fuck up these names. <laughs> Viola Davis as Dr. Volumnia Gall, Peter Dinklage as Dean Casca Highbottom, and Hunter Schaefer as Tigress. Young adult films were prevalent in the late 2000s to early 2010s. Harry Potter was wrapping up with the Deathly Hollows, and Twilight was taking over the world. Hollywood studios were chomping at the bit for the next billion-dollar young adult franchise to milk. And in walks The Hunger Games, a novel written by Suzanne Collins, heavily influenced by the Japanese film Battle Royale, the Roman Colosseum, and the Greek myth Theseus and the Minotaur. In 2013, The Hunger Games picked up right where Twilight Breaking Dawn finished off. A lot of my classmates and my ex-girlfriend at the time were obsessed with these books. They kept talking about them in school, and they were just unapologetically excited that they finally had something outside of Twilight to look forward to. Everyone tried to get me to read them, but I just never found the time. The only books that really interested me were The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, A Game of Thrones, and... Captain Underpants, of course. (laughs) But unlike Twilight, though, The Hunger Games' film adaptations really captivated me. Not being a reader at all, I love these movies. From the star-studded cast of Jennifer Lawrence, Stanley Tucci, Woody Harrelson, and Donald Sutherland, to the gritty world of Pan Am, these movies were much more mature and violent than any other young adult novel adaptation. 
and considering that the films are only PG-13 rated, I think the movies did a phenomenal job disguising the horrors of child murder. (laughs) Now, as the films went along, the stories diverted from the games, of course, and dove into the political turmoil surrounding the uprising of the districts. For me, Mockingjay Part 1 and Part 2 didn't quite stick the landing. Many things hampered the finale of the series. Things like Jennifer Lawrence's increased popularity and celebrity status, the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman, and of course, the diminishing box office returns. Now, I'm not saying Jennifer was checked out by the final film, but it was clear that she had bigger career goals in mind. She went on right after The Hunger Games to win an Academy Award for Silver Linings Playbook, and she even got a second nomination for American Hustle. Eventually, she did check out of another franchise, (laughs) that was the X-Men, but that's probably for another episode another day. (laughs) So even though I didn't like Mockingjay Part 2, I will say that the original Hunger Games and, of course, Catching Fire are absolute bangers, and I 100% recommend you go out and watch those movies before you go watch The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. So, my hopes are actually pretty high for today's movie. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is derivative of a spinoff book that Suzanne Collins wrote, so there is a lot of source material to draw from here. After all this time, I think this is a franchise that can really benefit from added life injected into it. The world of Pan Am is so unique and diverse that it was only a matter of time before the studio explored another time period of the story. I think the trailers did a fantastic job of recapturing the tone and the setting of the time period, as well as the Hunger Games' young adult love story. Of course, we can't go a Hunger Games book without uh, two young people falling in love. Now, with the high expectations and optimism, could the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes recapture the magic of the original franchise? It's time for us to get to Act 2, my spoiler-free review. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, guys. There was a point around the two-hour mark where I was blown away by this movie. Between the strong world-building and the character work done with Coriolanus Snow, and of course the Hunger Games itself, I was wondering to myself in the theater, how the hell did this movie only get 60-something percent on Rotten Tomatoes? And for those two hours, I was so immersed that I was beginning to believe that this movie could actually be better than the Jennifer Lawrence films. This movie felt like it was moving at a brisk pace, hitting on some incredible high notes, while also not squandering any of the more subtle, dull moments. The film is structured like a novel, so it's pretty easy for the audience to follow with each act being presented with a black and white title card indicating the name of the act. For example, within the first five minutes of the movie, it says, Act 1, The Mentor. In most movies, I don't mind these title cards. They set the tone and give the audience insight in what to expect from the film, especially from the acts. But in my opinion, the presentation of the title cards is to the detriment of this film in particular. While I was really immersed and happy with the first two hours of the film, when the conclusion of The Hunger Games occurs, the third title card is shown on screen. And I swear I could have almost heard the entire audience audibly groan at the idea that despite the film being so great at this point, there was still an entire act to sit through. In this film's case, 
that extra act is an entire hour added on to the runtime. <laughs> so you may be aware that this film is a prequel to The Hunger Games, so the audience is generally aware of what is to become of Coriolanus Snow, but I think his story would have been better served as a miniseries on Max, or maybe just split apart into two films. Now just imagine you're a sports fan like I am, and you've just witnessed an extremely well-played, high-scoring football game. The score is 35-35, to 35, with one of those final points coming in the last second. The problem is that the game is now headed into overtime, where all the star players have gotten injured, and no one can move the ball, and as a result, the overtime quarter ends with no yards of offense, and the game results in a tie. That is what this film felt like. <laughs> I was so captivated by the first two acts of this movie that I wanted to pre-order it to own. By the middle of the third act, I was so confused and bored and utterly astonished by the direction the movie was going. The character twists and the maneuverings in the final act of the movie feel so rushed and half-baked that it felt like the studio was unsure that they would get a sequel, that they had to wrap everything up in a nice little bow. It feels so odd to call the resolution rushed, especially since the movie borders on three hours of runtime total. How can you spend so much time in a movie and feel like the final resolution was not well earned? But this movie does that. This movie is so difficult to judge as there's so much of it that I loved and so much of it that drags the entire film to a screeching halt. I would go as far as to recommend this movie, but the massive runtime and final act debacle could be daunting for a lot of people. And in case you were on the fence, let me talk about some of the things that made me love the first 60% of this movie. The performances of its three main actors, Tom Blythe as Coriolanus Snow is a compelling leading man. He paints Snow as a sympathetic hero with a hidden level of darkness inside of him. We grow to root for him while the odds are stacked against him and Lucy Gray. While speaking of Lucy Gray, let's discuss Rachel Zegler. Zegler has a lot of controversy surrounding her following her casting and comments about the upcoming Disney Snow White film. Her outgoing feminist advocacy and activism has led to backlash and a lot of harassment on her social media. Since then, Rachel has officially deleted all of her social media and has abstained from promoting her work on this movie and Snow White. I find the whole situation extremely tragic and it has me worried for this young woman's career, whether or not she gets blacklisted from major motion picture studios, simply because she is fantastic in this movie as Lucy Gray Baird. Zegler's musical performances steal the spotlight and much like Lucy Gray herself, she captivates the audience whenever she is on the screen. Zegler and Blythe have really good chemistry together. Their romance doesn't feel ham-fisted or telegraphed in any stereotypical teenager way. At first, they're adversarial and untrusting. Then they develop together throughout the first and second act while Snow mentors the young woman to survive in the Hunger Games. Their chemistry makes the third act so frustrating not in the direction that the series had to take this relationship, but in the execution of where these characters are fated to land. Now, of course, the third character, and my personal favorite of the film, is Viola Davis's 
Volumnia Gall. I think I said her name right. <laughs> Volumnia. <laughs> She's so cartoonishly evil and over the top, and Viola Davis is loving every minute of it. The Oscar winner clearly has a pedigree in playing maniacal psychopaths, pulling the strings behind the curtains. She was Amanda Waller, after all. <laughs> this is the kind of character that enables its actor to chew the ever-living fuck out of the scenery, and boy does she. Gaul is so memorable because of Viola's manic laughter and look. As the original games master of the Hunger Games, she devises the traps and creations that will be used throughout the competition. Her cruelty leaves its lasting mark on Coriolanus and ultimately shapes him into the person he is to become. I love Dr. Gall. <laughs> I'll just call her that, Dr. Gall. I loved uh, Viola Davis in this film. Other notable actors like Jason Schwartzman and Peter Dinklage are also very good in this movie. Dinklage brings his Tyrion Lannister character to Pan Am as a drunken person of power who yields Coriolanus's future in his hands. Peter Dinklage's acting pedigree really lends itself to Dean Highbottom. His character plots and schemes against Coriolanus, and although I'm comfortable seeing him portray protagonists throughout his career, I found it really refreshing to actively root against Peter Dinklage in this one. As for Schwartzman, he plays the eccentric and hilarious Lucky Flickerman. Lucky is an ancestor to Stanley Tucci's Caesar Flickerman. The Flickermans are a much-needed levity and comedic relief in these movies, injecting dark humor into the Hunger Games while showcasing the gluttony and wealth that District 1 holds above the rest of Pan Am. The competitors in the Hunger Games this time around may not be as compelling as the ones in Catching Fire or the original film, but I did find a few of them enjoyable as well, most notably Reaper, Coral, and Wovey. But what makes this Hunger Games competition stand out, opposed to the ones in the earlier films, is that the prequel setting lends itself to seeing more barbaric and basic fighting techniques. The technology used in this movie isn't as sophisticated as it is when Katniss competes. The drones that we've seen in the other Hunger Games films that will bring supplies to the competitors are in their infancy in this stage, so they're clumsily crashing into things and at one point they're even used as weapons. The television monitors and the microphones are ripped straight from the 60s, so you really buy into the time period of this games. And the games arena, it's just a simple coliseum. There's no aquatic arena or a forest that is collapsing as the games grow longer. The combatants are stuck in a desolate stadium with basic swords, knives, bows, arrows, and blunt weapons. I once again have to applaud Francis Lawrence and the set designers for being able to convey the brutality of this fight while keeping it restrained to a PG-13 rating. I feel like this movie is far more violent and action-packed than the Five Nights at Freddy's film, for example. With really creative hands, there is a way to properly portray violence in a teen setting without the use of blood or gore, and this movie does a good job of portraying that. So clearly there is a lot to love and like about this film. But let me hark on some of the bad. It isn't a spoiler to say that Coriolanus is eventually going to become the main antagonist of the franchise. This movie is about his rise to power and the destruction of Pan Am. But the reason I believe that this film would have been better served as a miniseries is because Coriolanus' character twist in the third act is so rushed and boring. I don't want to point the blame at Tom Blythe either. I feel like this actor gave a lot of charisma and ethos to Coriolanus, and you really do root for him. 
but the final act does his fine work a disservice. Snow's motivations often get muddied in the final act as he navigates through wanting to be with Lucy Greybeard and his desire to get back to the capital to save his family. All the while, he has to discover whether he's allegiant to the military or to his friends. The political machinations in the final hour of this movie are hard to follow, and they drag on for far too long. Eventually, when we get to the point before the credits when Snow reunites with his family, we are kind of left wondering, who the fuck cares? <laughs> it's really tragic. At the conclusion of the second act of the movie, I had it pegged to be a 4 out of 5, and possibly even making my end of the year film list. But as the credits rolled, my score diminished. The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, gets a 3 out of 5. The movie is enjoyable enough to recommend, but isn't great enough to remember. I will say that it is better than Mockingjay, so if you enjoyed those films, you're really going to enjoy this one. I think it's worth watching, at least when it's streaming. So now it's time for us to crunch the numbers. Let's hear what the audience has to say and dive into filmmaking trivia. This is Act 3, Receptions and Factoids. So a few weeks ago, I reviewed The Marvels, which has turned out to be the biggest flop in Marvel Studios history. Critically and commercially, the movie was lauded for having issues in its storytelling and acting. Yet still, The Marvels is rated positively on Rotten Tomatoes at 62%. And despite the issues I had with The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, I firmly believe it is a much better film than The Marvels. And for the most part, critics agree with me. The Hunger Games 5 comes in with 66% critical rating. Consensus from the critics state, An outstanding cast and exciting story helped The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, a worthy return to Pan Am, in spite of a rushed and somewhat frustrating ending. I can only imagine what the tomato meter would have said if the movie ended when it should have, and that was when The Hunger Games actually ended. This movie could have been an 80%, but it's a damn shame that it isn't. They fumbled the bag at the end. Now quickly, I want to run down the Rotten Tomatoes ratings for each of the previous four entries in comparison to this one. Let's start with the original Hunger Games, which came in at 84% certified fresh. Then, The Hunger Games Catching Fire, my personal favorite in the series, is at 90% certified fresh. It is, without a doubt, the best movie of the franchise, both critically and commercially. Of course, the franchise began to take a downward spiral after that, with Mockingjay Part 1 coming out to only 70%, and then Mockingjay Part 2 equaling that with 70% as well. And although The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is 66% fresh, that officially puts this installment of the franchise at the bottom of the rankings. But I will have to commend them on having fresh ratings for each of the films in the franchise. Not a lot of movie franchises can pull that off, and The Hunger Games is one of those. You'll have a good time with all five movies, I guarantee it. So audiences are actually a lot more positive about this film overall. Right now, this movie is holding at 90% with casual moviegoers. Audience consensus is that The Hunger Games' The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes does a great job of adapting the book, adding depth to a central character, while giving fans a look at how it all started. 
So this is the part of the show where I pull some audience reviews and showcase the differences of opinions. Let's start with a couple of the five-star reviews. Lucy R. says, An amazing movie. It's practically spot on with the book. Just a few details off, but not by much. Absolutely loved it. Five stars. I can't necessarily agree with the book adaptation point, since I didn't read the book, but I'm glad to hear that even the readers find merit in this movie. There is a lot to like here for all audiences, even those who haven't read the source material. Salma A. says, I honestly went into the movie not really caring, and I'm so glad I watched it. It was so good. I actually cared about the main characters, and it's so many twists and turns. There's a couple scenes where I got very emotional, and I haven't felt that in a while about a movie, so I definitely recommend it. It is pretty long, but I definitely did not get bored in any of these scenes. Five stars. The movie has to cover a lot of ground. So in a sense, I can see how someone so captivated by the movie can feel engaged the whole way through. And I'm glad that Salma was locked in the entire time. Now for a different perspective, let's take a look at a couple of the one-star reviews to kind of balance things out. For a lot of people, nothing will ever beat the original. Jerry C. is one of those people. He writes, Way too long, a bore fest compared to what came before. They decided to ruin a franchise and they were successful. Shout out to bad writing and directing. I don't understand how the director of this franchise, whose previous Hunger Games films were pretty good, don't waste your money on this cow pie. See the originals for free. Way better than this pile of porcelain bowl commando drops. <laughs> Man, I, I really wish I could see what Jerry thought about Mockingjay Part 2. <laughs> now for my favorite review of the night. We have Stephen S. who says, Maybe it was the mood I was in when I saw the movie, but I fell asleep halfway in. It was so slow, I felt zero connection to any of the characters, to the point of I didn't care if any of them died. Maybe I expected too much, but I would have walked out if I hadn't been with my family. (laughs) One star. The idea of a guy sleeping through a movie, then leaving his family in frustration at the theater is a hilarious image to imagine. (laughs) But there are a couple ways I want to approach this whole I fell asleep attitude when it comes to movie reviews. Should I trust your opinion if you didn't pay attention or watch the whole film? Or should I trust your opinion even more and say that it is a boring film because you couldn't pay attention to it the whole time? It's an odd little conundrum, and, you know, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I like this movie. I don't think it's something that you could sleep through. Maybe the final act, but definitely not the first two-thirds. But there is a very obvious through-line with all these negative reviews, even the positive ones. The movie was just too fucking long, and as much as I enjoyed it, it should have kept to a lean 90 minutes or two-hour runtime. So... Before we get to the filmmaking factoids, I want to take the time to highlight one of my favorite positive critical reviews on Rotten Tomatoes because it sums up this film perfectly. Katie Walsh of the Los Angeles Times, a top critic on the website, makes a very fair comparison. She says, Essentially, the Star Wars prequels of the Hunger Games world. But while George Lucas took three movies to show us Anakin's fall into darkness, Lawrence and the screenwriters Michael Leslie and Michael Arndt try to do it in one overstuffed installment. 
I don't know if there was enough material in the book to stretch it out into three movies like the Star Wars movies did, but at the bare minimum, they should have held off for a sequel. And the analogy to the Star Wars prequels is spot on. I couldn't agree with you more, Katie. Let's now dig up some filmmaking factoids before we conclude the spoiler-free section of the podcast. I mentioned how captivated I was with Rachel Zegler's performance and voice. Our first factoid, in fact, is that Rachel Zegler sang all of the songs live on set. It adds to the immersion, and the crowd could really get involved with the actions that are on screen there. You can tell that this is a passion project for Rachel. Now, according to director Francis Lawrence, he was convinced to cast Viola Davis to play the villain after seeing a meme online. The meme apparently was taken from a still from her film The Help. Someone just photoshopped the still into a fake horror film poster, and it sparked Lawrence's imagination for the character of Dr. Gall. So he went ahead and casted her for the role. I think it was the right call. She is perfect in this movie. (laughs) In an interview with Vogue, costume designer Trish Somerville said the corset with Lucy Gray's rainbow dress has the Katniss and Primrose flowers on it. It's a nod to Katniss and Prim Everdeen from the original films. Nice little nod, and if you're a fan of the franchise, you probably got a kick out of that. Another nod to the original Hunger Games film, Lucy Gray's curtsy at the ceremony. It's a nod to Katniss's curtsy in the Hunger Games, according to director Francis Lawrence's Teen Vogue interview. Actress Rachel Zegler also said she improvised this moment to pay homage. And so I saved the best for last. This final factoid is pretty significant. Anna Sophia Robb, Anya Taylor-Joy, Natalia Dyer, Maya Hawke, Sophie Turner, Ivana Lynch, Kaya Gerber, Sadie Sink, Elle Fanning, Sydney Sweeney, Florence Pugh, and Emma Watson were all considered for the role of Tigress Snow. What a stunning list of actresses that was compiled there, but none of them got the role. Instead, Tigress is played by Hunter Schaefer, who those of you Euphoria watchers know, is a trans woman. The notion of a cis female character being given to a trans actor is very forward-thinking and progressive. We oftentimes see genetically male or female actors portray trans characters, but not the other way around. Hunter earning the role is a huge leap forward for representation and trans acceptance, and I gotta applaud them to that. Was it the right call? I'm not quite sure because this character doesn't get a lot of screen time, but it is worth applauding them for. Lawrence justified her casting as being more than just a gender statement, but that he felt that Schaefer offered a genuine sincerity and appreciation for the source material than any of the other candidates. In fact, Hunter was very outspoken on their love of the Hunger Games books. She has shown across all forms of media pictures of herself when she was a teenager, dressed up like a capital citizen, sporting a colorful and garish dress with extravagant makeup. Her fandom and passion for the series helped land her this important role. And kudos to Hunter Schaefer. She was, she was good in this movie. I wouldn't say she was memorable, but she was good. And thus concludes our spoiler-free portion of the episode. 
be sure to follow the show on social media to participate in the post-credits season of giveaways, starting with our episode next week as we review Deck the Halls and Jingle All the Way. The show shares the same handle on Twitter and Instagram. Just search PC with Gil. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube so you don't miss an episode. If you have seen The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, stay after the credits song for our spoiler discussion. Thank you for listening, and as always, go catch a movie. This is a spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert. So today's spoiler discussion will be a bit brief in comparison to some of the other episodes I've done, because there are a handful of things I really want to hammer on. This may end up just being a rant segment, if I'm honest with you. I am so incredibly pissed off and frustrated with the final act of this film, because it's insanely boring. When The Hunger Games is over, Lucy Gray has won by the sheer creativity and critical thinking of Coriolanus. We are teased earlier in the movie that the rainbow snakes don't attack based on scent. So Coriolanus finds an opportunity to use his father's handkerchief, which Lucy Gray wipes her tears on, to train the snakes not to kill her in the arena. And despite Dr. Gall's desire to completely invalidate the results of this year's Hunger Games... Coriolanus convinces her that Lucy Gray's murder would result in an uprising. He says to her that people want to watch the Hunger Games because they need to believe that they can win it. They need to have someone to root for. Although she backs down and allows Lucy Gray to win the event, Dean Highbottom doesn't let the two off the hook. He discovers that Coriolanus conspired to cheat the games, so as punishment, Corio is being subjected to serving life as a peacekeeper. This setup and plot twist is all fine and dandy, and I loved it. I think it's a great place to end the film. And it would have served as a perfect cliffhanger for a sequel. Instead, the fucking movie goes to black and shows us the third act title card, which took the wind out of the sails for me and the people in my showing. This is a classic example of less is more. And the extra hour of runtime completely butchered how fantastic this movie was up until this point. The third act follows Coriolanus and his friend Sejanus Plinth through their time in the Academy for the Peacekeepers. Their time in the Academy is incredibly truncated and rushed through. One minute the two are sharing hopeful optimism in the train car, encouraging each other to do great things. Then five minutes later, they're at each other's throats because Sejanus is conspiring to leave the Peacekeepers and start the uprising. The chemistry that developed between Coriolanus and Sejanus in and out of the capital and the Hunger Games is dispatched quickly with little to no reasoning. And the reason why it feels so shallow and unearned is because we don't exactly know how Coriolanus is thinking while he's serving the Peacekeepers. He displays a desire to find and run away with Lucy Gray, but he also wants to return to the capital and give his cousin Tigress the life she deserves. His motivations are incredibly bizarre and vague, 
Perhaps if we saw more of Tigris and his family's struggle, we would be able to feel a sense of urgency to see him return to the capital. But instead, we only want to see him return because we know he is going to become the president of Penem. We want to see how he rises to power. If the movie was stretched into a two-parter or a miniseries, I fully believe these motivations could have been elaborated on, and we could have gotten to see his descent into madness. Sure, we get to see his character issues a little bit in the first and second act, but they quickly go from 1 to 100 in the final 30 minutes of the movie. This character turn is so jarring, it will give you whiplash. And I loved seeing Corio and Lucy Gray reunite after the bar. But their relationship is as long-standing as a one-night stand. Sejanus's plot to abandon his peacekeeper role is discovered by Corio, which presents him an opportunity to get back in the good graces of Dr. Gall. Corio uses the Jabberjays to snitch on Sejanus and his accomplices, effectively sentencing his longtime friend to death for his own acceptance back into the capital. It's a really shitty thing to do, and snitches get stitches. <laughs> Lucy Gray gets dragged into this whole ordeal, and Corio must then get rid of all loose ends, including her, since Lucy Gray was there to see Corio kill the two people that were conspiring. Lucy Gray baits Corio into the woods where he's snake-bitten, he then takes a shot at her with a rifle, and the two unceremoniously part ways as enemies. Look, I think it's clever how the film uses the allegory of a songbird using a snake to win the Hunger Games and nearly kill Corio, but their rivalry comes far too late in the film to justify to the audience why they need to murder one another. Lucy Gray then disappears from the film, the franchise, and we are never given any indication that she survived Coriolanus' attack or what became of her towards the events of the original Hunger Games films. The one scene I did enjoy in the conclusion of the movie comes from when Coriolanus returns to the capital. This was a nice little bookend, and I wish the movie kind of elaborated more on this part. He is pardoned for his crimes and gets promoted by Dr. Gall for turning in Sejanus, which then gives him the opportunity to tie one final loose end and extract revenge on the person who ruined his life, Dean Highbottom. I don't mind that Highbottom's motivations and plots against the Snow family is left for the very final scene. I'm just glad they kind of got around to it. It does finally give us peace of mind knowing why he was such a dick to Coriolanus throughout the first act of the film. Coriolanus finally gets his revenge on Highbottom by poisoning him with the Plinth Prize, and Coriolanus's transformation into his father is finally complete. The world building of the Hunger Games is fantastic. I could definitely see myself watching any future installments or in-between movies. It's so rich and full of opportunities, despite having a definitive ending. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes may not have stuck the landing, but it's certainly a film I'll revisit when it hits home video and streaming. What did you think of the movie? Was the return to Pan Am worth the wait for you? Did you read the novels? If I missed anything, please let me know and I'll address it during next week's episode or on the YouTube comments page. This will conclude the episode, and I will see you next time for my Guilty Pleasures holiday special. Take care and have a good week, everybody.